I just heard, you know, I mean, Brian Kemp's getting the support of all kinds of hardworking, good people all across Georgia, and uh, Stacey Abrams being bankrolled by, by Hollywood liberals. Sending their support into the state, and some of them come into the state. Like I heard Oprah's in town today. And I heard Will Farrell was going door to door the other day. Well, I'd, I'd like to remind Stacy and Oprah and Will Farrell, I'm kind of a big deal too. Welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host and we are on the eve of the election. It is Monday night and I am joined by Luke Boggs. Luke, how are you doing? I'm doing well. We're doing a retro show. It's just me and you holding down the fort. It is just me and you, and uh, we are talking on Monday night. You are probably listening to this on Tuesday morning or sometime during election day. Um, So on this week's show, we are going to preview the elections that are happening today. Uh, For our first topic, we are going to talk about accusations from Secretary of State Brian Kemp that officials with the Georgia Democratic Party attempted to hack a voter registration system. Kemp levied these accusations and launched an investigation into state Democrats on Sunday, two days before the election. But while doing this, he did not offer any evidence of an alleged hacking attempt or of a tie to the state Democratic Party when he made this announcement. And so Democrats have been critical of Kemp using this investigation as an abuse of his power as Secretary of State on the eve of his election uh, challenge with Stacey Abrams. So we're going to talk about that. Then for our second topic, we are going to wrap up our coverage of this race and just talk about the other things that have gone on in the race between Stacey Abrams and Brian Kemp in the last week or so of the election. Both Abrams and Kemp had a bunch of heavy hitters like President Trump, former President Barack Obama, Vice President Pence, and Oprah come in to campaign for the respective candidates on uh, in this race. Um, so we're going to talk about that. And talk about Kemp's backing out of a debate that we were supposed to discuss tonight. He backed out of the final debate on Sunday to rally with President Trump. For our third topic this week, we are going to talk about the messaging of this campaign cycle, including some of the ads that we have seen on the airwaves. Um, This is a race that has had record spending at the state level, and I'm sure it's been record spending at the national level. It, It feels like they're all record elections at this point. Um, So we're going to talk about some of the ads and some of the messages that you're seeing. And then finally, we'll take a look at some of the other down-ballot races, um, just any sort of news and notes to wrap up our coverage of these races as we head into Election Day. Uh, But first, let's start with the investigation that has been launched by Secretary of State Brian Kemp. He launched an investigation into the state Democratic Party, alleging that officials with the party attempted to hack the state's voter registration system. Uh, As we said, he didn't offer any evidence of a breach or a tie to Democrats, and state Democrats have denied any wrongdoing, calling the allegation 100% false. Uh, Stacey Abrams on Monday morning called the investigation by Kemp a witch hunt. Luke, do you agree with the assessment that has been put out by Democrats in the media that this is an abuse of Secretary of Kemp's power? I do. This, to me, just seems like 
textbook make them deny it campaigning uh, that Lyndon Johnson made famous and, you know, just making very incredibly outrageous accusations, especially near the end of a campaign and having to make your opponent go out there and deny it instead of talk about what they want to be talking about. And to me, it just seems that uh, Kemp's campaign is, is incredibly desperate and they're, uh, logic behind saying that Democrats was behind this was qu- quite limited. I can't come up with a legitimate explanation for this being a good way to have handled this by camping his office. And I don't mean just this situation, but I mean the whole entire campaign of him not removing himself whatsoever from the election duties of the Secretary of State. I understand him retaining his position. It's most secretary of states do, but also most secretary of states, including those in Georgia that have run for higher office, have tried to separate themselves from the election administration parts of their job so that there was not a appearance of uh, impropriety. And Brian Kemp's done absolutely nothing to make us feel that way. And it, it just continues to uh, frustrate me with how much he's politicized the position of uh, secretary of state. And he just is continuing to do that. Yeah, I've been really concerned. I I think that this is a uniquely aggressive abuse of power that Kemp has taken part in here in the closing hours of this race. Kemp announced this investigation from his Secretary of State's office in his capacity as the Secretary of State, and it was his Secretary of State's spokesperson who has been announcing new details about, uh, well, they put out press statements that say they have new details in them, but don't, they haven't offered any kind of, you know, concrete evidence or anything like that, that I've seen as we're recording on Monday night. Yeah. And can I point that out? This is obviously a very outrageous allegation, either in it being not true, or if it is true, either way, it's outrageous. Uh, and the fact that Brian Kemp's come out with this accusation without presenting evidence to the media is really astonishing to me because if you did have evidence, I would think you would want it to be on the front page of the AJC and not just a, you know, sentence in a statement that you send out. Yeah. And then on top of not putting evidence in the statements from the secretary of state's office, his campaign sent out an email saying in an act of desperation, the Democrats tried to expose vulnerabilities in Georgia's voter registration system. The statement calls it a fourth quarter Hail Mary pass that was intercepted by the Republicans in the end zone. And it says these power hungry radicals referring to the Democrats should be held accountable for their criminal behavior. They don't have evidence of criminal behavior here. Um, And it's, it's just like, it's too close for me for an announcement to be coming out about an investigation from the the secretary of state's office. And then just hours later, the campaign is sending out emails as if the secretary of state's investigation has found criminal wrongdoing and prosecuted people like this to me, I think is probably the worst example of how he's handled being a candidate and being an overseer of elections in his own race. The other thing that I found completely outrageous about how the Secretary of State's office has conducted themselves as it relates to this is their investigation seems to be interested in a woman named Rachel Small. And uh, Candace Brochi, the spokesperson for the Secretary of State's office, sent a text out to the sent a text out to the media saying that the FBI was looking for information on Rachel Small. 
and it included questions in the text message. Who is Rachel Small? Is that her real name? And for whom does she work? And why was she talking about trying to hack the Secretary of State system with Sarah Gazal, the Democratic Party of Georgia's voter protection director? The thing that doesn't really line up to me in terms of how they've put this information out is the Democratic Party, after this text went out, announced on Twitter that Rachel Small is an employee of the, is an intern in the voter protection office for the state Democrats. On Monday morning, the jolt in the AJC has emails that the Democratic Party has given to the AJC annotated with the entire string of events that the Democrats say happened, which is that Rachel Small is an intern in the Voter Protection Office. She received an external email with a tip in a computer program that would expose a vulnerability in the voter registration system, she forwarded that email along to the director of the Voter Protection Office, which is her boss, presumably. And then her boss consulted with outside cybersecurity experts and notified the Secretary of State's office that this vulnerability existed. And so what it what appears to be happening because the the state Democrats have said have given a lot of detail about their side of this story, and Republican Secretary of State Brian Kemp has given no detail about any evidence, is that Democrats discovered a vulnerability when they were given a tip by an outside person, told the Secretary of State's office about that vulnerability. Apparently, according to some other reporting, the Secretary of State's office learned from another party about this vulnerability at about the same time. And then hours later, from Saturday afternoon to Sunday morning, Brian Kemp turned around and said it was the Democratic Party who was given this information, that they were the ones that were under investigation. And then they put Rachel Small's name out into the media without contacting the state Democrats to ask who she was. And the thing that I don't understand about that connection is that they know that Rachel Small talked to the director of the Voter Protection Office, but they apparently did not know that she was a employee of the Georgia Democrats. And so they put her name out there in the media, and I think damaged her reputation based on these allegations, but apparently are not doing their due diligence on actually investigating this issue. It just seems really sloppy. And it seems sloppy in a way that it shows the intentions of Kemp and and the people that work for him in this instance to use this as a political weapon and not get to the bottom of a vulnerability with the state's election system. Yeah, I, I don't understand the approach that they have taken until I step back a second and think that this is actually quite typical of Brian Kemp and quite typical of how uh, people act in the midst of campaign mania. And I, I think uh, like much of what Brian Kemp has done as secretary of state, he went off half cocked and uh, you know, got uh, some information and without actually thinking about the facts, just blasting it out there in a way that would be politically advantageous to him. And so in, in many ways, this is typical of what we've seen from Kemp before. And uh, I, you know, unfortunately think it would be exactly how he'd operate as governor. Well, the other thing that was also kind of outrageous about this was that in the same breath, Secretary of State Kemp said that there was an attempt to hack the voter registration system, but no information was stolen and the system is secure. And then after 
that happened, ProPublica reporters and researchers were looking at files on the Secretary of State's website uh, based on the information that has now uh, circled around in the media about the vulnerability on the website and could see that code had changed on the website to patch up these vulnerabilities. So Brian Kemp is saying these vulnerabilities never existed. There was an attempt to hack, but it's all secure, while his technology people are patching up vulnerabilities on the website. So it appears that he is not being honest about the security of the voter registration website. He is the only the only Secretary of State in the country who refused help during the 2016 election, and he appears to be lying about what's going on still. And so I think, you know, as this relates to the decision a lot of people are going to be making today, this has been a long job interview, and repeatedly, over and over again, Brian Kemp has continued to lie about things big and small, things important and things not important. And I think that this this is, to me, the best example of the preview of what you're going to get of Brian Kemp as governor. Yeah. And it, again, it's just been very typical of what we've seen from him. And I, I really hope we don't have to see what four years of this would be like because, and I, I've hit on this before, but I think it just bears reiterating Brian Kemp has operated secretary, the Secretary of State's office as a purely partisan office, and it really has a bunch of tasks that are supposed to be nonpartisan, and it's a shame that uh, this has happened. And I hope, uh, regardless of who the next governor is, that the legislature thinks about uh, putting in some guardrails to prevent the politicization uh, of that office. Do you think that the next Secretary of State ought to do a backwards-looking investigation into how this investigation was launched and under what circumstances? I think it would be really great if the Secretary of State, uh, the next Secretary of State, actually promoted transparency and accountability. And I think having uh, the Secretary of State go through a report of what our current security situation is uh, in, you know, with all the databases the Secretary of State maintains would be a very, very positive uh, thing to, to see have happen. So I, I would definitely support that. I, I wonder if it's going to take a Democratic Secretary of State to actually do that. I mean, another element of this story is that after the data release at Kennesaw State of some other voter data, the legislature passed Senate Bill 315, which was aimed at criminalizing what is known as sort of white hat hacking, which is where security professionals, security researchers probe websites like the Secretary of State's website for vulnerabilities and then notify the people who are in charge of running those websites when they have an opening for a data breach. And instead of thanking people for doing that work and notifying people and helping make sure that our systems are secure, this bill would have criminalized that activity, regardless of your intent. Now, Governor Deal vetoed that bill. And Attorney General Chris Carr said, as that bill was being debated, that accessing a computer without author without authorization, without permission, is not illegal in the state of Georgia. And that's why this bill is needed. So that the thing that I think still needs to be raised about this investigation is under what criminal statute in Georgia are 
people being investigated because without stealing data, without actively getting into that information, under the logic of Senate Bill 315, they haven't committed a criminal offense because that law is not on the books. Governor Deal vetoed it. And so that's why I think there needs to be more transparency about about what's going on here. But it but it's indicative of of the posture of state officials on these security vulnerability issues that their first thought in this instance was to criminalize people who could help you figure out where you have vulnerabilities instead of fixing the problems. Yeah, I think that's right. And I hope that uh, once we're out of camp- the campaign season and people have been elected, we can focus on fixing the real issues uh, uh, after that. I also think we've we've given this topic way more time than it probably deserves since it is more likely than not just a cooked up conspiracy from Brian Kemp uh, trying to follow the Trump playbook and distracting us from talking about the real issues. Yeah, well, let's let's move on to kind of wrapping up our coverage of this race. So um, as we record on Monday night, this race is still essentially a toss up. The 538 polling average has this race leaning 0.9 points towards the Republicans. And a recent poll from uh, the University of Georgia and the AJC had this as a 47-47 tie. Go dogs. A recent poll from Singal over in Alabama had this 49-47 Kemp within the margin of error. Another Emerson College poll had Kemp with a slight lead also in the margin of error. Where, Luke, where do you think this race stands as we head into Election Day? I think it's going to be very, very close. It's definitely going to be closer than 2016 was and much closer than 2014. Uh, That being said, I don't know if Abrams has done everything that she needs to do to break out and win outright. But I think uh, anything from a very slight Kemp win to us having to continue this race for another month and going into a runoff is well in the realm of possibility. Candidates on on both sides of this race uh, brought in some heavy hitters to make their final pitch before the election. On Sunday, Brian Kemp rallied with President Trump in Macon. Trump gave what now seems like a very familiar campaign speech that not much different than 2016, not much different than his appearances on the trail this year. Did he say a vote for Brian Kemp is a vote for Donald Trump? You know, I don't remember if it, if he said that's exactly been his go to line, but, but uh, he, he definitely invoked himself and he invoked the Trump agenda in his speech that he he actually like oddly got into the details in his speech about the importance of governors and how governors are really important to the Donald Trump agenda, which seemed to be more knowledge of the political system than I assume that Trump had. Um, but it. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, he, he seemed to be he seemed to mostly be on the prompter during his speech with with Kemp. Stacey Abrams, too. She had uh, big surrogates come in. President Obama was here on Friday. Uh, President Obama praised her, praised Abrams for having a sunny vision for the future of the state, a positive vision, uh, which increasingly feels like the the divergence in the messaging between the two parties. We'll, we'll get into this more in our third topic, but it does feel like sort of the the final message in this race has been um, either Kemp pointing to a hacking investigation or saying that 
Abrams was going to ruin the state. Trump said that uh, Abrams was going to turn the state into Venezuela. Um, And Abrams and Obama talking about Medicaid expansion, talking about the need for for more jobs and better jobs and uh, the things that Stacey would do for the state. Those are are two starkly different messages that you're getting from the parties in the last few days. Yeah, the one thing that makes me think that maybe we could end up getting surprised on Tuesday night, and this is completely anecdotal, so I'm just going and like completely part of my bias, so I'm just going to like put that firmly on the table. But the I, I was actually at the rally where President Obama uh, came to Georgia, and that was really one of the most fired up crowds I've ever seen and people were were very very excited and really seemed engaged and you know the the line to get in was really really basically surrounding Morehouse uh where where the event was held and people really seemed fired up most of the people uh had said they'd already voted and were going to be uh you know canvassing and doing phone banking for the the rest of the campaign weekend and up until Tuesday and so you know there it could be one of those wave elections where the polls just miss how incredibly democratic it it could be and there's some signs of that i mean early the early vote is 121% higher than it was in 2014 and it's it's fairly young i mean it's you know 18 to 29 year olds make up 9% and 30 to 39 year olds make up uh, almost 11% so i i just want to put that out there so that uh if if it does happen it is something that's sort of in like the very skinny tail at the end of my uh, my my spectrum of predictions but it's it's just really interesting to me uh, that that there is this just disproportionate feeling, I guess, to me about like how excited and fired up Democrats seem to be. And as far as my Republican friends go, I just don't see the same energy from them on Kemp or really any of their candidates. And so, on that front, I guess that disparity is really surprising. What did you think of Abrams bringing in uh, President Obama to? rally with her as this comes to a close. I mean, this is a very different posture than Democrats had in 2014. Nationally, Democrats were kind of shy around the president, um, particularly in places where he had only kind of modest support. What did you think of, of having Obama in Atlanta to get out the vote? I think it was a great idea. I mean, this has been Abrams' strategy the whole cycle to, you know, basically, at least for as far as I could see, any popular Democratic surrogate that wanted to come into the state, she her campaign has happily promoted them being there campaigning for her. I think it's a good strategy because, you know, <laughs> talking about 2014, uh, you know, don't need know if you need to like look at the Senate or look at the House to remember that that wasn't really a great year for Democrats. And I think a big part of that is because, you can't you can't win if you're like running afraid, right? Like the Republicans very clearly think that you can use fear to win and you can make your electorate afraid, but you can't win yourself if you're campaigning afraid. And frankly, I think at this point in the climate we're in and the message that Abrams has been pushing and the direction that the country needs to go in, it would have been incredibly inauthentic for her to not have Barack Obama come if Barack Obama was like campaigning for a bunch of other candidates and was obviously willing to come and was a, you know, someone that had endorsed her. It would have been really inauthentic to not have him come in the same way that I think it's incredibly authentic for Kemp to have Trump come. 
and that because Kemp supports Trump and likes a lot of the policies that he's pursued and thinks that Trump is pushing the country in the right direction. Same thing for Abrams. She thinks Obama was a good president and that he had a lot of policy, uh, you know, su- successes and they share a lot of the same policy goals. And so on that front, I, I think it was a good strategy to bring in these messengers because they are messengers that have excited the electorate before and they are messengers that uh, can help boost Abrams's message by higging on different notes that then Abrams hits on. So I am, you know, again, I'm a little biased because I got to see Obama because of it uh, and uh, shake his hand, which was pretty amazing. So on that front, uh, I'm, I'm definitely biased, but I think it was a good strategy. Yeah. What did he say to you? What did you say to him? I don't really know what he said to me because it was really loud, but I, I just thanked him <laughs> for coming to the state of Georgia, and I think he said something along the lines, uh, it was too important not to come, but I really don't know because it was super loud uh, being around uh, him. But yeah, he gave a great speech, and it's obvious he's been uh, hitting the trail pretty hard because his voice was pretty much completely gone. Yeah, I wonder, I feel like it's mostly upside for Abrams because of the strategy that she's adopted, going after the Democratic base and trying to bring new voters into the fold. I wonder if there's a little bit of downside for Kemp bringing Trump in. And I don't know that the downside will be for Kemp. I think as you look at it statewide, Georgia's still a state that President Trump won in 2016 and that Barack Obama lost in both 2008 and 2012. But the 6th Congressional District seems to have tightened quite a bit um, to the point now that on, on Election Eve, 538 has this as a true toss-up. Both Karen Handel and Rob Woodall were absent from Trump's event in Macon. Um, Trump, when he was there with Kemp, called out most of the Republicans in the Congressional delegation um, to to call them out and encourage people to vote for him. Uh, but he didn't mention uh, Handel or Woodall, as far as I can remember. Um, so I wonder if it's not all upside. Yeah, especially because Kemp uh, had to cancel the debate uh, because of uh, Trump coming to town, which I really I really wonder if people, if, if this hurts him at all. Because the thing is, Part of the reason it's really hard for me to believe Brian Kemp when he says the Democrats hacked the voting in Georgia is that he's lied to the Georgians so often and so many times, uh, especially when he can uh, frame issues in a way that hurts his opponents, that he's lost a lot of credibility for me on that front. Uh, Because when he dropped out of the debate so that he could go hang out with Donald Trump, he said that Abrams canceled the debate, which is not true. So on that front, I don't know if it is a net positive for him to have uh, Donald Trump there. But based off the uh, his performance in the first debate, it probably is better for him to just talk to a group of people who already support him rather than uh, trying to face hard questions. Well, that's that's the thing that also makes me so distrustful of his description of the hacking issue um, was that he didn't have to lie about backing out of the debate. Like he would not have lost any points among Republicans to say the president's coming to town. The president decides when he comes to town and I have to be on his schedule. Um, And so I wanted to go spend time with our president, president Trump and be with Georgia voters instead of being in Atlanta. The fact that he trotted out his spokesperson, Ryan Mahoney to say that Abrams canceled the debate was just so indicative of 
like where Republicans sort of stand with the truth right now, that it's just, they just have this like impulse to just lie about everything. And I think it's the rot within the party that Trump has sort of made okay, because he did that and he won. And so I think people sort of connect those two together and think, oh, you know, you just lie your way to victory. No, I think you're exactly right, because that was actually, I think, the most unique thing about uh, President Obama's speech when I was listening to it, is just how hard he hit Republicans for that. And um, I think one of the the best points that he made, and he, he and I, I think this is the point in his speech where he actually specifically said, and for like the Democrat, for the people who aren't Democrats that are watching, like that you have to go out there and support Democratic candidates to just hold Republicans accountable for blatantly lying so much and constantly that if they don't face electoral consequences for going out there and lying about so many issues that they'll just continue to do it. And I think that's a really threatening thing for the democracy. And so I hope there's some accountability uh, that comes with this election on Tuesday. Yeah, Matt Iglesias at Vox during the Kavanaugh uh, debacle, I mean, he got on the court, so I guess it wasn't a debacle. For uh, the no, it was still a debacle. Um, he kind of got hung up on that one of the first things that Kavanaugh said when he was announced as the nominee, that no president had ever looked far and wide and done as tough an evaluation of candidates for the Supreme Court as Donald Trump had. It was something that was just like plainly bullshit and was such a lie that like everyone knew it. And this lie about the debate was the same kind of thing to me that like there was reporting in September that Kemp and Abrams had both agreed to the debate. And it was a stupid thing to lie about. But to go out there and lie and to do it with such gusto and act and be so offended that people would think, oh, how could you think I'm not telling the truth about this? That was the thing that we haven't seen lying like that in our politics before we've seen spin and both Democrats and Republicans have done it, but to blatantly lie about stupid things simply because you can is the thing that I, that I am most frustrated with. But yeah, what do you think just on the, on the uh, substance of that debate? What do you think about that debate falling off the calendar on Sunday night? Do you think it has any impact on this race? Unfortunately, I really don't think it does. There's true. There's two truths that, I oftentimes hear about the Georgia electorate that I very much sign on to that makes me think that losing this debate doesn't really matter. One is that the Georgia electorate is very inelastic in that pretty much everyone who's a Democrat is going to vote for Democrats and everyone who's a Republican is going to vote for Republicans every once in a while. And when you get closer to local level, there's some variance on that. But for the most part, that's the case. The second part is that Georgia is a Democratic state with a turnout problem, that if the Democrats actually showed up, Georgia would be a fairly solid Democratic state. It's just that due to a lot of factors, uh, including a lack of organization by the part of liberal groups and Democratic groups and voter suppression tactics by the Republicans, Georgia just has not gotten the turnout that it really needs to be the state that it actually is. And... With those two factors in mind, I really don't think there they would have been a lot of people who really sincerely were like, I don't know who I was going to vote for, but then I watched this debate and I figured it out. Like, I, I think most people pretty much know who, who they're going to vote for, and um, I don't think the debate made much of a difference. 
Well, if you're somebody who thought about not voting in this race, listen to this story that Oprah told at her rally for Stacey Abrams and tell me you're not going to go to the polls. I'm here today because, like a lot of young people, I didn't take voting seriously until around my mid-20s. And around my mid-20s, I had, had, the, had the privilege of hearing Reverend Otis Moss Jr., who's a preacher. Y'all know him? Preacher. Preacher in, 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 in Cleveland, Ohio. And I heard him tell the story of his father, of Otis Moss Sr., who right here in Georgia's Troop County, got up in the morning and put on his only suit and his best tie. And he walked six miles to the voting poll location he was told to go to in LaGrange. And when he got there, after walking six miles in his good suit and tie, they said, boy, you at the wrong place. You at the wrong place. You need to go over to Mountville. So he walked another six miles to Mountville. And when he got there, they said, boy, you at the wrong place. You need to go to the Rosemont School. And I picture him walking from dawn to dusk in his suit, his feet tired, getting to the Rosemont School. And they say, boy, you too late. The polls are closed. And he never had a chance to vote By the time the next election came around, he had died. So when I go to the polls and I cast my ballot, I cast it for a man I never knew. I cast it for Otis Moss Sr., who walked 18 miles one day just for the chance to vote. Yeah, so if you don't want to vote in this election, I want you to go and tell Oprah that you're still not going to vote after hearing that story. Get out there and exercise your right to vote. So we focused a lot on the governor's race, but there's uh, a lot of other interesting races going on in Georgia. There's, of course, a full slate of Democratic tickets running statewide, as well as a bunch of state House uh, and state Senate Democrats running. And we actually, for the first time, I think since we lost the majority, have enough Democrats that if they won, they would uh, take the House back of, in the state House of Georgia uh, while it's it's pretty unlikely that we would have a wave that big, it is, it is still possible. And so that's exciting because in previous years, even if every Democrat had won, we would not have been able to take the chamber back. Um, so there's a couple of races uh, I, I wanted to talk about. Uh, I think we'll start with uh, the other statewide that I'm really watching, which is uh, former Congressman John Barrow, who's running for Secretary of State. Uh, we had him on the show a couple weeks ago. He He's been one that a lot of uh, people have been talking about just because, uh, at least, again, anecdotally, uh, a lot of my Republican friends have admitted to voting for him, uh, and he was pretty popular back in the uh, 12th district um, when he was a congressman there, and uh, it took the 2014 wave to to beat him, and he's been running quite significantly differently than everybody else uh, in Georgia, and I, it'll be very curious to see uh, if his... Uh, time representing a large chunk of the state of Georgia and being every media market except Atlanta uh, due to being gerrymandered over and over again uh, will advantage him and that he will you know, potentially pull higher and uh, pull a bigger chunk of the vote than the other statewide, or if he gets less. Uh, I think it'd be a really, it's going to be a very interesting race and a lot of uh, campaigns in Georgia could, can learn a lot from it either way. 
So I'll be watching that one pretty closely. Yeah, Barrow um, does seem to have gotten a little bit of a lead in polls compared to other Democrats statewide. Um, So most of the polls of statewide races seem to have them all very close, all within the margin of error, but very consistently Republicans are sort of one point or two points ahead. In the uh, AJC uh, UGA poll, Barrow is actually up 42-41 on Raffensperger. Um, Another poll from Singal over in Alabama has Raffensperger up 47-45. But again, both of these races are within the margin of error. So we're looking at an in basically a whole slate of races statewide that are essentially tied at this point. And the really crazy thing is, is there is a libertarian running in the Secretary of State's race as well. So we could have a situation where Abrams and uh, Barrow go into a runoff with their Republican uh, candidates because the uh, libertarians, while they're polling enough to keep them under 50% plus one, they're definitely not polling enough to be the number two. And actually, I, I meant to bring this up when we were talking about the debate, but it'll be interesting to see if these any of these races go to runoffs. The one sort of casualty of the debate getting canceled might have been Ted Metz's campaign and its ability to force a runoff in the governor's race. Uh, Jim Galloway wrote about this, and he feels like there's very little chance of a runoff because the Libertarian candidate is already polling very low. Ted Metz, the Libertarian candidate for governor, is already polling very low. And he lost a second opportunity to get on on television on the same stage as Abrams and Kemp and make his case. Um, the interesting thing Kyle, about can that I just is stop relates- you there? Yeah, I think Ted Metz would lose votes being on TV. Let's be honest. Well, he definitely lost all of our votes after the last debate. Yeah, we were secret Ted Metz voters. Uh, but then after that first debate, we just lost all faith in his ability to uh, represent Georgia as our governor. So, well, as it relates to the other races, I wonder if not having a visible libertarian candidate at the top of the ticket. I mean, the the other reporting I've seen on Ted Metz was that he wasn't campaigning very much at all. I wonder if if it actually drags down other libertarians in particularly in the Secretary of State's race. I mean, in the debate between all of the Secretary of State candidates, Smythe Duval was certainly more impressive than Ted Metz in comparison to the Democrat and the Republican. Um, and he is uh, polling a little bit higher than Metz is. Um, so but you know, if you don't have that support at the top of the ticket, if there aren't a lot of libertarians that are excited to get out and vote for Ted Metz, um, those votes may not even reach further down to somebody like Smog Duval. With all being in the margin of error, I suspect that that won't be where the result lies and we won't have a runoff. I'm really thinking that there's probably going to be enough error, hopefully in a positive direction for Democrats, but possibly in a positive direction for Republicans, that this race just ends. Because I, I think... Compared to other libertarians, Ted Metz is definitely not pulling as much as they usually do in Georgia. And so I, I, I would be surprised if we are in a runoff situation. Do you think the lack of a runoff is good for one party or another? Like, is it is Abrams either going to win this race outright on Tuesday or lose it in the runoff or or the other way around? Is it better one way or the other for Democrats. I, as far as it being better for Democrats or not, I don't really know. I would say it's probably better for Georgia and better for the, you know, for the country for this race to just be over on uh, November 6th, just because of the fact that barring some really unforeseen circumstances, 
more likely than not, if there is a runoff, the turnout will be significantly lower than the you know turnout for this election. And at least if uh, whoever you know whoever wins this round would have a majority of Georgians that voted voting for them. And I think that would be a positive thing compared to the likely incredibly depressed turnout that we would see in a runoff. But that might be, you know, conventional wisdom usually says that um, Democrats are really bad at voting and they uh, won't turn out for a runoff election, especially one during Thanksgiving and uh, the run up for Christmas Maybe that's not true. Maybe Abrams would be able to replicate her turnout machine and be able to beat Kemp uh, when you know they don't have as many reasons to get out, you know, get out there and vote. Whereas most of the Democratic voters really are turning turning out for Abrams, like that is the main person that they are excited about. Whereas I haven't seen that same level of excitement for Kemp. Maybe it is there, but I haven't seen it. Um, so. That's that's sort of my contrarian take, but all in all, I would say I don't suspect a runoff, but if a runoff happens, it probably benefits Kemp. So what do you think is going on in the 6th Congressional District? Earlier in this race, it looked like the 7th might be more competitive than the 6th, uh, but there's been a couple of polls that have come out right up against Election Day here showing McBath ahead by um, three points in a Siena College New York Times poll. And 538 is now on Monday night rating this race as pretty much exactly 50-50, a 50% chance that uh, Lucy McBath can unseat Karen Handel. Do you think that the polls are missing there or is McBath really this close and do you think she can win this race? I think there is a chance that McBath could win this race. This was a district that saw a lot of Democratic organization and energy uh, with the John Ossoff race. And from what I can tell, there's been a lot of energy for McBath as well and a lot of excitement around her candidacy and a another chance at beating Karen Handel. Additionally, with her being a candidate very strongly supported by uh, the gun control groups, uh, Every Town and Moms Demand Action, I, I'm pretty sure they're all on uh you know supporting her campaign i know they've been spending a lot of money uh supporting her candidacy i think that's just having an effect i think having outside groups really focus in on one issue and really being able to hammer karen handle hard on it and support mcbath has, has mattered and i think the fact that the six saw so much organization and they got you know decently close last time uh you know comparatively for georgia races I think it matters. I, I think that's that's really why you're seeing this. And I think out of uh, many of our congressional candidates, they really all started at different places. But I think McBath has been one of the candidates that's improved the most on the trail. So I think all I think all of that in totality matters together and is one of the reasons why she has a shot at the, the race. Because like you mentioned, uh, going into this cycle, it, it was sort of the worst kept secret in Georgia that all the politicos thought that the seventh was a much stronger district for Democrats and a better pickup opportunity just due to the demographics and uh, you know who's been voting there and who hasn't been voting there. But the sixth was always competitive, and so maybe those organizational factors on the ground and the outside support is what's pushing McBath closer to uh, taking that seat. Do you think that that has any spillover effect into the 7th? The 7th, according to 538, there is a 5-6 and six chance that Rob Woodall is going to win that race over Carolyn Bordeaux. 
this was the one that people thought would be more competitive. And I think you can look at some competitive state house districts within this congressional district, along with Stacey Abrams turnout machine that may help Carolyn Bordeaux in this race. Uh, but it, it certainly seems like Rob Woodall should feel comfortable going into Tuesday. I definitely would not discount the Bordeaux campaign's ability to pull this thing out, especially if there is, because one of the one of the things, and I mentioned this earlier, but one of the things I see as quite possible is that there is just like a slight polling error in you know nationwide in Democrats' favor, just due to the amount of energy and activism and how incredibly high the early vote's been. It's possible. I'm not saying that that's my guess of what's going to happen. That's not my prediction, but I think it's very well possible. And if that scenario turns out to be true, then I think more likely than not, if Abrams wins, then you see McBath win, you see Bordeaux win, or just barely lose. Let's back out into to national a little bit. Um, so right now, um, 538 rates Democrats as a 7 and 8 chance to take the House. Uh, but the Senate is going to go, looks like it's going in a different direction. Republicans have an, a 4 and 5 chance of holding on to the Senate and uh, a pretty decent chance that they are actually going to gain a seat, um, although the most likely outcome is still a uh, 51-49 Republican Senate, which just maintains the current balance of power. Um, is there anything about any of the national races, um, any of these Senate races, or anything about the House map that stands out to you? Not really. I think it just is uh, showing... The divide that we have in this country between the more rural states and the more urbanized states and, you know, the higher population states are trending increasingly Democratic and the lower population states are becoming more and more Republican. And so just naturally with how the founders made our system, that gives the Republicans an advantage in the Senate and a, uh, you know, the Democrats an advantage in the House. And the Senate result really doesn't, you know, surprise me. We came into the cycle thinking it was a tremendously terrible map for democrats and they honestly it's like amazing that we're in this situation where there's a scenario where democrats could take the senate on tuesday it's unlikely but it's possible <laughs> you know the fact that it's in like the possible range is pretty spectacular because almost undeniably if you had a president clinton running right now in this environment the Democrats would be looking at losing like six seats at least, and the Republicans would expand their majority significantly. So the fact that the Senate is somewhat competitive and Democrats are quite likely going to take the House with some seats to spare, I think is uh, really interesting. Yeah, it's it's also, I think, an interesting measure of how big the blue wave is going to be and if it can insulate some Democrats in Trump-heavy states. It does seem like Heidi Heitkamp in North Dakota may be toast. Her polling has not looked great in these races. Um, But otherwise, the red state Democrats, including Joe Manchin in West Virginia, Donnelly in Indiana, and McCaskill in Missouri, they seem to be hanging in there. The The closest race looks to be McCaskill's. But if she can pull that out, you may actually, like, I feel like it would be a victory for the Democrats to just hold this at the current distribution of power in the Senate. Um, oh, I have... mean, it would be a huge victory. Like, it would be insane if they were able to pull that off because at the beginning of the cycle, pretty much everybody 
was assured that um, that Democrats were going to face large losses in the Senate. So the fact that we're probably going to hold our margin is <laughs> amazing. And there to do that, they would have to flip. I mean, assuming that Heitkamp is gone, they would have to flip two Republican seats. One of those seats is Arizona. And the polling in Arizona has looked better than the polling in Nevada for the Democratic candidates there. So that would actually be Jeff Flake's seat uh, that would flip from the Republicans to the Democrats. Um, Nevada seemed like a seat that Democrats could get in this cycle because it was a state that Hillary Clinton won. Uh, But Arizona is still a state that Trump won. So I, I think it's a good measure of where the blue wave is, even if you don't see victory for Democrats on Tuesday night in the Senate. Um, just holding holding the line seems to be a victory in and of itself. Um, let's reel this back in to, to local a little bit. Um, Luke, what do you think the state of the state house races are? I think they're really good. Um, the Democrat, Democrats recruited a lot of really strong candidates, and they've had very active campaigns. The young Democrats of Georgia have been working really hard with a, a bunch of those campaigns and had a bunch of uh, events with them. And really, I, what makes me excited for this cycle is a couple things. One that I mentioned earlier is that we actually recruited candidates this time. Uh, in previous cycles, there's been several strong Democratic seats that just were completely uncontested. And that's not true this time. So it's pretty exciting to see campaigns that were on the ground earlier, raising more money than previous Democratic campaigns have and been knocking a bunch of doors and getting the Democratic message out there. So that being said, I suspect we will pick up a lot of seats, uh, you know, for what you would think in Georgia. So I, I think anywhere between 10 and 15 is possible. And I'm, I hope more. So there's a couple races that I'll be watching. Uh, some of them I'm biased for because they're in my adopted hometown of Athens. The other ones are uh, two other seats that Donald Trump won. Uh, the min- minority leader, uh, Robert Trammell uh, seat is a Trump district and he's been able to win it pretty comfortably in previous elections that were way worse years for Democrats. So I think he will probably be fine uh, and uh, uh, we'll be excited to see him back at the Capitol. We also have uh, Bill McGowan, who is a Democrat. Bill McGowan uh, decided not to run for re-election, so that will be an interesting seat to see if we can hold down in America's Georgia. And then uh, back in Athens, we have Jonathan Wallace running in 119 and Deborah Gonzalez running 117. And both those races, I suspect, will be uh, pretty close and uh, it's been a, a fierce campaign with a lot of activity on both sides. So I'm going to be watching those because for Democrats to really uh, get enough seats to really change how the legislature works, holding on to those four seats will be really important, as well as the pickups that we can potentially make. Obviously, um, Democrats, if they gain power in this election, it's going to be kind of a by the skin of their teeth victory statewide, either in the secretary of state's office or the governor's office, or maybe the lieutenant governor's office. Um, they're, they're most likely not going to win a majority in the house or the Senate after this election, right? No, probably not, but it's still in the realm of possibility. So is there, does this set the table for another good election in 2020 that may actually significantly shift the balance of power in you know, particularly the state house? It's unlikely that Democrats will take the state house uh, before redistricting, 
But with Georgia's population growth being as it has been and Democrats in general just doing better and running better campaigns and getting better candidates, it's it's quite possible that we could see a majority um, in 2020. But I, I think barring unforeseen circumstances, we're, we're probably we probably have a little bit more room to grow, but a majority would be pretty tough. Well, that further underlies the stakes of the election from a redistricting standpoint, because a Governor Abrams would have a veto over redistricting maps. Um, so those maps would probably end up being much closer to balance um, under a Governor Abrams than under a Governor Kemp. Let's close up with a little discussion of the messaging that we've seen in these races. Um, Luke, I'll, I'll give you the first shot at this. What are some of the standout messages that you've seen that are either resonating with you or, or terrifying you as uh, we come to a close? I think what's amazing about this cycle is just how almost nationwide we've seen the two parties adopt uniform messages. So the Republicans have been talking about three things, which is, uh, oh my God, the economy is great. Oh my God, look at these scary things. And oh my God, you know, I'm going to protect pre-existing conditions, don't you? Um, and LOL. yeah, that's, that's basically been their whole, <laughs> their whole campaign is that they, you know, lie about the economy being perfect. They lie about there being all these scary things out there that are coming to get you. And they lie about the fact they're going to protect, you know, protect preexisting conditions. And the fact that they base so much of their campaign on easily disprovable things is really remarkable to be me because on the economy front, yeah, the economy is doing pretty well, but they act like it started on January 20th, 2017, and that Obama was completely irrelevant, and the steps that his administration took was completely irrelevant to that, and that overnight the economy changed uh, when Donald Trump was elected. And on the Democratic side, it's a lot more hopeful and positive, I think, and a lot more forward looking because again, with the Republicans, they're very much so past and presently looking like the economy is great. And if you say it's not, you're a bad person. Whereas the Democrats are like, there's all these things that we could do to make America even better and to improve upon the progress that we have made. And I think that solid difference to me has, Unlike any other cycle, I think this is like the starkest contrast between the messages that I, I have seen. And I think and I hope that the messages that Democrats have adopted are better suited to combating the Trump message, because basically the Republicans have adopted the Trump, the Trump message at this point and seeing uh, Democrats, tr for the most part, not engage with it as much as well as try to like carve their own path and getting some hits on uh, the Republicans where, where is appropriate, I think is a better strategy. I'm hoping we'll pay off better dividends than what we saw in 2016. Yeah. In the uh, closing days of this race, uh, Trump, I saw a report today on Monday that Trump had a choice of a uh, anti-immigrant ad and an ad about the economy as kind of the main closing point of his message in this race. And he said the ad about the economy was too boring. And he's been saying on the trail that he doesn't like to talk about the economy because it's boring. Um, but the ad that he chose as his closing argument about immigration was pulled off the air by CNN, by NBC, Fox news, uh, <laughs> Fox news, even pulled it off the air for being too racist. Even Fox news thought it was too racist. 
Um, Takes work. So it does. Yeah. Um, so it, that to me, I mean, it just encapsulates where the Republicans have gone and how beholden they feel to Trump supporters and that message. That stance, that that way of thinking has sort of filtered down into a lot of the advertising uh, that we've seen in congressional races. And the the point that we were talking about earlier about how just easily Republicans lie about easily disprovable things is like the entire thing to know about their ads saying that they would protect people with pre-existing health conditions in their health care because they have repeatedly over and over again voted to repeal the Affordable Care Act and voted to replace it with policies that do not actually protect people with pre-existing health conditions. And analysts across the board that have looked at now something like a dozen different ideas have all come to the same conclusion about their bills. And yet, every time this issue comes up, Republicans just say, eh, we're going to protect them. We, you know, the Democrats have been lying. Trump is saying that the Democrats are not going to protect pre-existing conditions, which is just absurd. If you have paid any attention to the healthcare debate going on on the left in in between uh, the far left and in Democrats and the center left, and you know one candidate, Josh Hawley, who's running against Claire McCaskill in Missouri for that Senate seat, he is the sitting attorney general in that state, and he is currently suing uh, the federal government along with our attorney general Chris Carr to gut pre-existing. Per- pre-existing condition protections in Obamacare. The thing to know about that is Congress still has not come up with a replacement for Obamacare. So if this lawsuit was to succeed, those protections would just disappear. And there is no alternative on the table right now to do that. And yet Republicans are just sort of blatantly lying about this in their ads. It's, I'm just, I am really, as we come to a close here, I am really shocked about how easily they have lied in a way that I don't, you know, maybe I have rosier memories of the Bush era. Um, and obviously there are certain things that Bush was not honest about, but I don't. Swift boat <laughs> veterans for truth. But I, I just don't think it was as brazen as as, as what we see now. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I think um, the only other thing I, I found very interesting is just how incredibly uniform all the campaigns have been. The only campaign that I've seen that has adopted a truly different message is John Barrow's campaign for Secretary of State, where as many other uh, campaigns have tried to hit up how conservative or how progressive they are, his campaign uh, has basically tried to be as unpolitical as possible and amp up the fact that he's brought parties the parties together and worked together on that so in fact let's listen to his ad real quick. yes i'm john barrow running for georgia's secretary of state when i represented augusta and savannah in congress i voted to cut taxes and wasteful spending and each time i cross the aisle and work with republicans as secretary of state i'll do the same thing i'll respect your tax dollars and work across party lines it's what we're supposed to do and it's the only way to get things done. Yeah, I'm a Democrat, but I won't bite you. Yeah, and so that ag is pretty typical of what I've heard uh, him say on the trail and uh, what he said on our podcast. And so I'd be very curious to see 
uh, you know, how he does in comparison to everybody else, because the conventional wisdom is right now that you have to be as partisan as possible. And it's all about that base uh, to, you know, win elections. And so it would be very curious if uh, we see some significant crossover for Barrow or if he loses by a larger margin. And then by far the darkest ads that I've seen have come from an outside white supremacist group that isn't affiliated with any campaigns. Um, They ran uh, just super racist robocalls that we're not even going to discuss the content of here, but you can Google this if you want to hear it. They ran super racist robocalls in the Florida governor's race against Andrew Gillum. And then they ran uh, more racist robocalls against Abrams here in Georgia. Kemp did the right thing here. He disavowed these ads and, and said they were vile and disgusting, but I don't really think that that is enough in the context of Donald Trump because Kemp has not disavowed the words that have come out of Donald Trump's mouth. And Donald Trump has repeatedly given a safe space in our politics to people who have racist white supremacist views. And it's these ideas, you know, particularly as it relates to anti-Semitic ideas that motivated the shooter at the synagogue in Pittsburgh and, you know, Kemp appeared alongside Trump and Vice President Pence twice in this campaign. Um, so I don't think at this point that it is enough to disavow the words of, of racists in our politics that, uh, that I think is sort of the easiest low-hanging fruit thing to do. I think you've got to do a little more work to call out the environment that's been created by President Trump that even that would make white supremacists think it's okay to even buy these ads in competitive races attacking African-American candidates in the South. Yeah, it's been completely unacceptable and obviously actively encouraged by our president and by the Republican Party. And I, I agree, the the tepid condemnations of these ads have, have really been unconvincing to me. And I think everyone in the Republican Party has just accepted the fact that there's a lot of racist supporters in, in their base and they have done nothing to combat it since John McCain in 2008. Yeah, I would say, I don't think what Kemp said was tepid, but I don't think it goes far enough when you still continue to openly embrace Trump. And this is the the bargain that they've made, that racist people will turn out and vote for Republicans in support of Donald Trump. And that adds to your vote total. And as long as you can keep a proper balance between the racists on the far right and moderate fiscal conservatives in the middle to help you win these races, then that bargain works for these Republicans. But I don't, I don't think, you know, I think that history is going to look very uh, poorly upon people who have struck this bargain and Brian Kemp and Republicans running for the Senate, Republicans running for governor. I'm specifically thinking of uh, Representative DeSantis running for governor down in Florida. Um, They are some of the ones who are going to look the worst as it relates to this bargain. So let's close this out with a few predictions. Um, Let's start with the governor's race. Luke, what do you think is going to happen? Proving that we learned nothing from 2016. Let's make some recordings of predicting things uh, so we can be laughed at for our being wrong. Uh, I think, I think uh, what I said earlier holds true. I think Kemp's probably going to pull this thing out. Uh, And it's, it's mostly just because it's, it's a long haul to getting Georgia to be where it needs to be, to be a blue state. I don't think, I don't think we got there, unfortunately. 
you think he pulls it out tomorrow and not a runoff? I think so, yeah. I I think this goes to a runoff. I don't think it's done. Mostly because it's going to uh, continue to be a pain in my ass. <laughs> so that's why I think it goes to a runoff. Um, yeah, I, I'm less convinced of the conventional wisdom that a runoff would be bad for the Democrats. Um, but I don't think that the governor's race ends tomorrow. Um, what about some of the other statewide seats? Let's accept the baseline here that these are all these are seats that are all held by Republicans. Um, so are there any of the seats, Lieutenant Governor, Secretary of State, Secretary of Labor, Secretary of Agriculture, Attorney General, Education Superintendent, will any of these seats end up in Democratic hands after tomorrow's election? I think the two that I'm going to be watching closest are the Secretary of State and the Attorney General races uh, because of just the unique situations with the candidates. There, Charlie Bailey has run a pretty effective campaign, and he has a weaker opponent in Chris Carr, who's never been elected to statewide office before, and has a uh while, while is a lawyer has a sort of weak resume for someone to be attorney general i don't know how much that will actually end up mattering but that might be my uh uh you know optimistic civic engagement mind uh bleeding over and then uh sec- you know for secretary of state barrows uh race uh due just due to his unique resume and the unique campaign he's been running so i'd be very curious to see that um, the only other races that I think there could be a uh, potential for Democratic pickup, assuming there isn't a Abrams win, is the public Surf- service commissioner races. Uh, I would watch those very closely just because of utility prices going up in Georgia so much that if the electorate um, is educated on those issues and realize that the source of a lot of those decisions that are causing our utility bills to go up continuously is the public service commission, I, I think there's some possibilities there but just generally speaking beyond beyond secretary of state i would be pretty surprised if uh democrats win any of those races if if we're not winning the governor's race the one race that i would add to that list i agree i think the secretary of states is the most likely that might flip to the democrats and i think kemp might have a little bit to do with that with his conduct as secretary of state but the other race i would put on that list is the lieutenant governor's race um, not really because of anything that the Riggs Amico campaign has done, uh, but there, I think that there was a bad taste in the mouth of a lot of Republicans when Jeff Duncan beat David Schaefer in the primary in that race. Um, Duncan had the help of a lot of outside money, sort of an absurd amount of outside money in a election as unconsequential as the lieutenant governor's race, backing him up on that. And I think a lot of people on the Republican side weren't wild about Duncan's conduct in that race. And, you know, I don't know that Duncan's done anything to change that because I don't, you know, he hasn't been very visible in this campaign to me at all. Let's wrap up with some national predictions. Who do you think is going to control the House and the Senate after elections tomorrow? Uh, Democrats have the House quite clearly. um, And I think the Senate probably stays about where it is, maybe one or two seat change. You feel like there's basically no chance Republicans may hold the House? Barring some massive polling error that we've all missed that goes in the Republicans' direction, I, I would not think so. I think I agree. I think it's a uh, Democratic House, Republican Senate. I think there's a chance for a small surprise in one Senate race, uh, but I think that that 
surprise. Well, let's, let's really put you on the seat. Where is the surprise going to happen? Because I agree with you. I think there is oh. going to be one su- su- surprise second seat. Well, that's sort of my prediction is that I think there's a surprise. I want to say that it's Texas that Beto may pull it. That's out the one I would over I there would say too. I would say te- I would say it's either Texas or it's North Dakota. Those are the ones I would think. Do you think North Dakota would be surprising if Hike Camp pulls it out? Yes. Okay. Yeah, that's where I'm at too. And I think I think that unfortunately for Democrats, the positive surprise either in Texas or Tennessee, those seem to be the two states where it may happen, is really is just going to offset the loss by Hike Camp in North Dakota. But a Democratic flip in Arizona and Nevada plus a surprise in either Texas or Tennessee and Democratic holds everywhere else does give Democrats the Senate. I don't want to make you Democrats feel too good about it because it's it's certainly Kyle, a are you, are you telling me that Bernie can still win? I think he can. The math is there. <laughs> the math is there. Oh, Bernie is still running for yes. president. So um, um, he can just pick up some delegates and American Samoa. He's, he's got it. Um, yeah. And the only other race I think we should mention is probably Lucy McBath, which I, I think, I think Karen Handel's going to hold on to that. But I think, I think Lucy McBath has a chance to win, even if Abrams doesn't win. That's, that's kind of how I feel about that. I think if McBath wins, Bordeaux is also going to win. I definitely don't think that, but I, I'm not sure there is tension. Um, no, I just don't think. I think that you need a real wave to put Macbeth over the top. And I think a wave is going to carry both Macbeth and Bordeaux. I, I haven't stepped away from my feeling that the seventh is more competitive than the sixth, despite the polling changes. So I think they both win or maybe Bordeaux squeaks it out and Macbeth loses. Um, but I, I don't think that Macbeth wins and Bordeaux loses. Okay. Well, we'll we'll be curious to see if that happens. I disagree with you on that mostly because I think campaigns matter and I think the, how campaigns are run affect it. And I think Macbeth has run a better campaign. I think that's, that's why. All right. Well with that, we are going to leave that there. Um, So check out those returns tonight on election night. Um, Fire up that secretary of state's website and, if it hasn't been compromised by the Russians, you'll be able to view returns on it. Um, and then we will be back later this week, probably on Thursday, with a recap of these races and a discussion of what our politics looks like now that we have had the first national referendum on the Trump presidency. Uh, but with that, we are going to close it out. So Luke Boggs, thanks for coming back on the pod. Happy to be here and happy this is almost over, probably. Oh, God, I hope so. (laughs) Well, either way, we will be talking to you about it later this week. So y'all take care, and we will talk to you later. Bye, guys. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend, and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.